0: This is Roy Spiegel and Ryan and This is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is July 2022, and we're back for another month. I am done with what felt like an eternity of ICU, and uh, we're here to record. Ryan, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Things are lovely and looking up down here in Christchurch, uh, New Zealand. Winter is almost over. We'll get back to talking about the weather since you're talking about how bad your schedule is i'll talk about the weather again
0: yeah i spent like two weeks yeah. in the icu and got fairly delirious through it um and so, oh. by the end of it, I wasn't sure who sounds was... like a patient. sounds like
1: you were just as uh, just as mentally ill as the patients were actually critically ill yeah
0: I, that's what we uh I talk to my residents all the time it's like you you know you're fairly delirious after a week in the i c u and you actually got some sleep at night, you know you weren't poked and prodded all day and night, you're not strapped to a bed and injected with a lot of mild altering medications, and so imagine how they feel. Hmm. Anyway. Lovely. Good thought. (laughs) All right. On that note, why don't we hop in? I think you have the first article.
1: I do. Uh, The first article that we're going to talk about from the July issue is called United States 2020 Emergency Medicine Resident Workforce Analysis. Uh, The lead author here is Christopher L. Bennett, and they are from the Stanford University. This is one of the follow-up studies to the there's an impending physician oversupply story circulating around emergency medicine right now. Whether there is, in actuality, more attrition than new bodies joining the workforce, and the relationship between the two forces remains to be better described, one thing is certain. There are ever-increasing numbers of additional graduates. This article is simply a descriptive presentation of the characteristics of those training programs, their locations, and the density of training programs, with an emphasis on the effects of the new ones. The start date for their analysis was 2013, at which there were 160 emergency medicine training programs. By the end of their analysis in 2020, there were 265 emergency medicine training programs, This expansion of residency programs, along with the corresponding increase in training output, is not news to anyone and the source of so much gnashing of teeth. But the key bit in their analysis is the where the training programs are being increased. The shortage in the U.S., both current and projected, is rural. These new training programs are, of course, urban and in states already blessed with training programs. The big increases are seen in Florida which went from five programs to 19 during the study period, along with Michigan, which went from 11 to 25, New York from 21 to 31, Ohio, 9 to 18, uh, and then Pennsylvania and California. Some of these states have experienced high population growth, and it certainly seems reasonable to see an increase in training programs in, say, Florida. However, expansion of training in other locations potentially underlies a maldistribution of the training and subsequent likely practicing workforce. Although it should be clearly noted, many folks are highly mobile upon completion of training or train far from where they intend to practice due to the vagaries of the match process. In any event, this is just one piece of the puzzle contributing to the next 10 to 20 years of the specialty workforce and emergency medical practice in the United States.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not surprising. I one I would like to see this compared to, you know, other uh specialties residency training programs because I think most of the residency training is urban rather than rural. Um and so I think you would see fairly similar distributions. And like you said, this is only part of the puzzle of of what this means for the workforce going forward. Um uh, obviously, we have increased our training programs, and th- coupled that with you know a very drastic decrease in 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 need for emergency physicians over the last few years has led to kind of uh, supply um, outpacing demand. Um, but that's yet to be seen whether that's constant at all. Um, and of course, this this data is kind of back a few years before you know we've had a couple years of pretty poor. Recruitment of emergency residents uh, out of the match, so it's wondering what this stuff, what this looks like now.
1: No, yeah, this is just data, and then trying to figure out where this data goes
0: is a, it's another study in, in, in its own. Yeah. All right. Why don't we move on? Uh, our next article is the aerosol generating effects among non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, non-rebreather mask, nasal cannula, and ventilator-assisted pre-oxygenation, uh, and the lead author is Sing Li Chen. So, I mean, first, it would be really nice to have this study about two years ago when we were getting ready to intubate a whole bunch of COVID patients. Um, but I think it's fairly consistent with other data we've had from prior to the, the uh, pandemic. Um but it's a really interesting study attempting to quantify the amount of aerosolization that occurs uh, during a number of different pre-oxygenation techniques when, when you're preparing to intubate a patient. Um, and using a mannequin uh, and smoke particle generators, atomized glycerol and a, as a tracer gas, and a high-sensitivity camera, the author tested continuous positive pressure, uh, vent, uh, non-invasive continuous positive pressure, bi-level positive pressure, uh, Bi-level with a face mask covering, high-flow nasal cannula with a face mask, nasal cannula, um, just a standard nasal cannula, a standard non rebreather, and then something they call the vape box or ventilator-assisted preoxygenation, which is essentially when you, you hook the patient up to a ventilator using a non-invasive uh, mask um, and use that to pre the patient on like a pressure support setting. They found essentially when they looked at that the distance of dispersion of particles was fairly similar throughout the various pre-oxidation methods, a number of exceptions. Most notably, the highest uh, distance uh, of aerosol generation was the BiPAP group and the lowest, which is the vape box group, which importantly showed no dispersion of particles. Um, and this makes sense if you have a good mass seal on the patient and a, a closed circuit, you're not going to get any uh, aerosolation of particles. In addition, each of the pre methods had a different pattern of aerosolization generation based on where the air could escape um, as the mannequin exhaled. I, I think the best representation of this is figure two, uh, where you can see the, the, the generation of aerosolization and the patterns they form. And you can see the stuff like the CPAP and BiPAP circuits uh, aerosolized essentially in a linear spray coming directly from the exhalation port, um, and it traveled in a single direction, whereas the high-flow nasal cannula and that nasal cannula had a more like general distribution around the mannequin's head and something like the non-rebreather, you could see it was kind of coming out from below the mask and through the exhalation ports on the side of the mask. And and so, while this is interesting, I I think the take-home messages are fairly limited. It's a fairly, like, sterile study that is kind of pretty far from what happens when you actually intubate patients. Um, For example, it doesn't take into account what the patient's doing, uh, what happens when the patient coughs, when they try to pull their face mask off during the intubation. Um, And so, it doesn't really kind of represent what's happening during a true intubation. In addition, like, while the the vape box looks really, really good what happens in the moments that you have to take the vape off off to intubate the patient? What are the aerosologenizing moments uh with something like that? Um so all in all, I, I think that there you can kind of look at these studies and see where the risks of being exposed to aerosolization are in each of the different methods of pre-oxygenation. And while using the ventilator, pre-oxygenation may be the safest way of doing it. Certainly it's probably one of the most effective ways of pre-oxygenating someone. And it may be one of the safer ways to pre-oxygenate people. Uh, We don't know for sure, because there are those moments when you have to break the circuit and uh, you might get significant aerosolization at that moment um and so i think all that being said is you still have to treat this like an aerosol is generating procedure and obviously wear full ppe when doing it so
1: yeah i mean i think that's the basic takeaway of all of these visualizations is that yeah once you're once you're pushing once you're pushing oxygen into somebody's face and mouth uh, it's going to spray everywhere you know you're going to generate aerosols everywhere you're at risk you should Keep yourself protected. Um, and then there's this little side effect where it's like, man, maybe if they are hooked up to a closed circuit, yeah, that's better. You know, a closed circuit is better than exhaling everything into the room. Uh, and then how much can you actually keep them on the closed circuit is a whole other matter about like how you can practically implement this. But again, uh, as you say, the, the practical matter of it is that you're going to be encountering particles that are exhaled um, from somebody um, when you're going to be getting up close and personal with their face and trying to oxygenate them or prepping them for intubation. And you're just going to have to make sure that you and your staff are protected appropriately.
0: Right. And, and actually, previous studies have shown the most, the most dangerous times when patients are coughing, right? Like, like they generate far more aerosolization themselves than, than we do with any of these oxygenation techniques. Um, I, I would just say if, if you're using either the BiPAP or, or CPAP circuit, just don't stand directly in front of that exhalation board because mm-hmm. it seems to be a, a perfect jet just pouring right out of that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: luckily i don't stand in front of the exhalation port very often yeah
0: i mean unfortunately that's going to be your your assistant who's handing you your tube right that's mm. their their perfect position is right where that exhalation port is located
1: yeah suboptimal all right um, the next article we're going to talk about from this July issue is a prospective observational cohort comparison of SARS-CoV-2 seroprevalence between paramedics and matched blood donors in Canada during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the lead author here is Brian Grudow, and They're at St. Paul's Hospital and the University of British Columbia. Uh, so this is a pretty straightforward little article looking at occupational safety during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, the seroprevalence from infection of individuals working in healthcare. In this study, the cohort of interest is a national paramedic sample from Canada, primarily those in British Columbia and Ontario, who provided samples between January and July 2021. These samples were analyzed for presence of SARS-CoV-2 nucleocapsid antibodies and then compared with the background rate of seropositivity from blood donors in Canada during the same, same time frame. They ultimately collected 1,627 samples from 1,459 unique paramedics and generated two comparison: One sort of one-to-one matching sample based on age, month, and regional frequencies, and a second weighted comparison in which all samples were analyzed but with varying weights based on those features. The basic result in this time frame was that about 5% of all paramedics were found to show evidence of prior infection during the sampling time frame. The basic result, about 5% of all paramedics were found to show evidence of prior infection during the sampling time frame. Then, the basic result, about 4% of all blood donors were found to have evidence of prior infection during the sampling time frame. These differences were basically the same regardless of comparison. The only mildly interesting tidbit that falls out, samples from those who were unvaccinated at the time of sampling were much more likely to show evidence for prior infection in the paramedic cohort, while this was not the case in blood donors. In fact, it may have been slightly lower among in the blood donor cohort. The sort of reasonable explanation advanced by the authors, of which I generally agree, is that the paramedic work increased the likelihood of SARS-CoV-2 exposure, and those who were not fortunate enough to be in the early vaccination cohorts experienced a greater number of person days at risk, resulting in this subsequently observed higher rate of observed prior infection. However, just to toss another wrench into this idea about three quarters of the paramedic cohort was actually vaccinated at the time of this analysis, meaning the unvaccinated cohort could have also have some differences with respect to non-occupational behaviors and attitudes towards SARS-CoV-2, which could also have confounded these observations. Overall, I'm rather impressed at how few infections were identified in this cohort as late as early 2021, and also that the difference was generally much smaller than observed than in other study
0: cohorts of frontline workers. Yeah, I, I you know, I, uh, th- there's been a number of studies that show that, that the, the rates are lower than we all would expect. Um, and a lot of them were done on ICU clinicians and so has to wonder, you know, in the ICU when generally your patients are intubated and you're in that closed circuit, like we talked about in the previous article, your risk of being exposed is fairly low. And does that risk go up as you go to the emergency department where you're seeing many more of these patients uh, who who are not uh, uh, being ventilated on a, on a ventilator. Um, and in pre-hospital, where things are far more chaotic, does that risk go up even more? Um, but it doesn't seem to. It seems fairly low either way, which speaks to the effectiveness of the PPE. Yeah.
1: And it's, I mean, it's good that uh, they had enough PPE, uh, potentially, maybe in this cohort in British Columbia. Um, and then, you know, again, if SARS is quite contagious but it's not like a guarantee that you're going to pick it up if you're in the same room with somebody, yeah. somebody who has it uh, especially with some of these earlier variants I mean J- January to July 2021 was not uh, was not peak delta or omicron, omicron so right. there was still a chance that yeah. you could avoid potentially
0: getting infected at that point. Right and and you know once someone's sick it's easier to protect yourself than before they have symptoms which um you know seems to be at least in some of the variants uh, the peak infectious times. Yes. All right. All right, next article Optimal pre hospital blood pressure and major traumatic brain injury a challenge to the current understanding of hypotension. And the lead author is Daniel Spate. So this is a really interesting article, most specifically because it kind of reminds you how little data we had prior to this uh, about managing blood pressure in patients with the TBI. Um, But, you know, for years we've considered hypotension in patients with TBI, human dynamic predicament, that was to be avoided at all costs. And this was born out of a body of literature demonstrating even a single episode of hypotension was associated with an increase in mortality in this population. But the potential for confounding in these articles was pretty high. Most of these studies were fairly small. They were all observational. It was difficult to isolate whether the hypotension was the cause of the increased mortality or simply an associated variable, essentially marking the severity of the injury itself. Uh, So these authors conducted a secondary analysis of the EPIC-TBI study, which was essentially a before and after uh, study examining the implementation of a protocol to treat patients pre-hospitally with TBI. Um, and for the secondary analysis, they split the cohort into a derivation and validation groups uh, using the pre- and post-intervention groups from the original study. And, and they looked at how pre-hospital blood pressure affected outcomes. Um, they looked at uh, over 12,000 cases, um, and they were looking at the lowest pre-hospital blood pressure recorded. And they essentially found uh, three uh, observations of note. Um, there was essentially a linear relationship with blood pressure uh, and adjusted probability of death uh, from blood pressures between 40 and 130 systolic. So, obviously, as you drop below 130 systolic, the mortality started to rise. It arised in a fairly linear fashion all the way down to 40 millimeters of mercury. When you look at the middle group, so the patients with a blood pressure between 130 and 180, They all showed a fairly low mortality that was fairly consistent throughout those ranges of blood pressure. And then as you saw the blood pressure climb over 180, you saw a rapid increase in mortality. Um... The authors controlled from, from multiple variables. They examined the patients with isolated TBI, and when they did all these things, they found a pretty similar pattern throughout, um, showing this was fairly consistent, um, even when you did your best to isolate patients with TBI, so to make sure that these blood pressures weren't representing a severity of another disease, like associated trauma, essentially. Um, so I thought it was a really nice study. Um, the take-home points I think are slightly tricky, but uh, I think in a few of these groups it's a little easier. If you look at group three, the ones with the blood pressure over 180, and remember, this is the lower, lowest blood, systolic blood pressure re- registered. So they had the lowest blood pressure they had was over 180, but often it was much higher than that. And this is likely a representation of the disease itself, if you look in this group, uh, having a blood pressure this high was associated with having severe TBI, and likely this is just a representation of how severe the disease is. Um, often the patients with severe, severe TBI have, 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 have massively high blood pressures that is incredibly hard to control. And so it's not surprising that these patients had a much higher blood pressure because you're just identifying a much sicker group of patients. Um, group two, the ones with the lowest blood pressure, again, this is probably a representation of the fact that, you know, these patients Uh, had a fairly stable blood pressure from where we think is normal, Um, so it didn't identify a group of patients with severe TBI. It also didn't identify a group of patients that also had um, hemorrhagic shock or some other form of trauma that, that, that was leading to a higher mortality. And so, again, pretty understandable that group two has the lowest mortality group one is the trickiest to interpret in the sense that there is no inflection point below which uh, the patients start to see a massive increase in their mortality rate. Rather, you just see a linear increase in mortality for every drop in blood pressure, you see a higher mortality. And I think this is just, once again, representation of the fact that as blood pressure goes down, you're more likely to identify sicker patients. The lower the blood pressure is, the sicker the patient is. Um, And so you're probably seeing the signal of identifying a sicker and sicker group of patients as that blood pressure gets lower and lower. So what do we take from this? I, I think I think, again, it, it mostly demonstrates how little we know about controlling blood pressure in patients with TBI. I don't think you can use this to find, like, perfect cutoff to say, keep your patient between 130 and 180 and everything's going to be fine. Um, I think... Patients with low blood pressure usually have a reason for it, and we should endeavor to find that reason and intervene on it. Um, But obviously, some patients, a blood pressure of 120 is too low, and other patients, a blood pressure of 100 is too high. Um, And each patient is different. And to find, like, the perfect number in a large cohort like this is just too blunt an instrument to do so.
1: Yeah, I think it. Generally speaking, it you're right that it just identifies the patients who are the sickest, and it's not like in these studies, you know, they reflect they're they're showing people who are just observing these low blood pressures without intervening. These are patients who are so sick that people are doing pre hospital interventions in attempts to raise their blood pressure. I mean, these are people who are hypotensive; they're probably getting blood products dumped in. They may even be putting on vasopressors, They're getting intravenous fluids. They're getting interventions to either to try and identify the cause co- and reverse the cause of their hypotension. Uh, so I, I'm not sure exactly what the takeaway is. I don't, I don't think anybody is neglecting or, or, or discounting the importance of hypotension. I just think it represents a, a known association of something that's of a severe d- disease process with a really high mortality risk. Um, like you said, the, the high blood pressure, again, that, that reflects a severe disease process with a high mortality risk. I, I don't think people are, are neglecting to, to respond to these these abnormal vital signs. Uh, I think this is really just, an observational, uh, de- uh, really just an observational look at how sick some p- trauma patients are um, uh, at the extremes and that it's really reassuring overall if your patient's blood pressure is in a, a generally normal range. Um, with some uh, accounting for a sort of relative decreases or increases, such as an elderly person whose normal blood pressure with arteriosclerosis might be in the one fifties or one sixties, versus a younger person whose normal blood pressure is in the one tens to one you know one one hundreds to one ten.
0: Yeah, my, my fear is this study is going to be used more to show that that. If someone's blood pressure drops, you have to bring it up you know now under one thirty a systolic of one thirty is 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 too low, and we have to keep our our patient's blood pressures above that, and we're going to do so by bolusing them large amounts of fluids and so on and so forth and and of course, this does, doesn't show that at all right it's just it's just basically showing you're identifying a, a patient at a higher risk the lower the blood pressure grows and, and and that risk starts to seem to go up as you get below one thirty and and likely it's just identifying a sicker group of patients, not the blood pressure itself as the cause of the harm.
1: Well, I mean, it, it basically calls for a, a randomized controlled trial of you know, of some sort of iatrogenic intervention to ensure the blood pressure is elevated. Um, and I'm sure, like, the standard of care is to give people blood or blood products or fluids to try and raise their blood pressure. It's probably not successful enough, as we're seeing in these studies. Um, but uh, I will tell you that we, down here in uh, New Zealand, we use a, a drug called metaraminol, which is a push-dose vasopressor, and it beautifully raises your blood pressure. I don't know if it's clinically useful or clinically important or actually improves outcomes, but they do it. And that sort of intervention would be a perfect, uh, you know, adjunct towards let's just raise the blood pressure. Let's fix a number and see if it actually helps. So I think that would probably be a good target for a randomized controlled trial.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could even do it in like in the the intubation period, right? Like do push dose pressors and patients with TBIs who are undergoing RSI um, improve outcomes, right? That's a fairly small group of patients that you could look at fairly simply yeah Oh uh, yeah if you had the right right network and a large enough sample sure. yes yeah
1: all right cool yeah all right and the last article we're going to talk about from this uh july issue is called gender distribution of emergency medicine podcast speakers the lead author here is alexandra manix and they are at the university of florida college of medicine in jacksonville this is a uh, brief research report with a direct relevance to us here today, yeah. although we are not specifically part of this analysis. These authors looked at, by their judgment, three popular emergency medicine podcasts, selected both for popularity and because they have a diversity of hosts and guests featured on the podcasts. The podcasts selected were Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspectives, better known as EMRAP, Crit and the emergency medicine cases, uh, and they sampled from July 2011 to June 2021. As with most of the sort of gender parity articles we've done, the results are grim, with only a tiny sliver of good news. Across the sample period, the authors identified 5,962 speakers in 2,834 podcasts by finding the pronouns used by the authors and our favorite piece of software, (laughs) genderize.io, the authors determined the most likely gender identity of the speakers included. Overall, 10% of hosts were women and 90% were men. 23% of guests were women and obviously 77% were men. It was also significantly more likely that a female host would have a female guest than a male host. The only positive, really, to take away from this is a trend. In 2011, 9% of speakers were women. Well, in 2021, that number had risen to 23%. The authors effectively note that podcast representation is similarly important to publication authorship, as digital scholarship becomes more prevalent a component in promotion and tenure packages, and the accompanying Jarman editorial likewise makes the same point, along with a call to action for stakeholders and leaders to take concrete steps to improve parity and equity. These words are absolutely taken to heart here at the podcast, and when this same study or something like it is performed 10 years from now, we are determined not to be part of the problem. While there is nothing we can officially announce at this stage, we are collaborating with our leadership team to identify how we can add additional co-hosts who can provide both a diversity of perspectives and opinions, along with role modeling within our specialty that is so important.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, these results are damning. It, 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 there's just no excuse here. And, and it's like you said, we're obviously part of the problem. Um, and really, the only real solution is, is having more women on podcasts, having more ro- role models for people to, to see and to emulate creates more podcasts with more women hosts and more women guests. And so, like you said, uh, we're currently um, trying to become more part of the solution than the problem. And I think that wraps it up for July. Yeah. That's another month in the books. Obviously, uh, as always, with any questions, comments, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asap.org. Until next month, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki, and this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast.